Hello and welcome to this episode of By His Word. I am your host and teacher, Candy Carmichael. Last week we started a series on the red thread tracing Jesus throughout the Old Testament. We're going to take a break from that this week to focus on the war in Israel that started this past weekend with a surprise attack by Hamas in southern Israel. We will focus on both historical and prophetic components that led to this war. From the creation of the world, God is focused on one special place on the planet, the region known today as the nation of Israel. The region contained the Garden of Eden, the home of the first two people made in the image of God. The land has undergone many wars, people groups, and changes before the current state of Israel came into existence. But the historical and prophetic significance of this piece of real estate affects not only the Jewish people who are the primary inhabitants, but also the church and every other group of people in the world. In the Bible, God begins to focus on this area as a homeland for his chosen people with the calling of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, which today is southern Iraq. At the time, Abram was 75 years old and his wife Sarah was 65. They had no children. But the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Unto you your and your descendants will I give this land, Genesis 12, 7. It would be 25 years before this promise was fulfilled, but Abram believed the Lord until he saw that child born. Sarah, on the other hand, did not have quite the confidence of her husband. Knowing that she was well past childbearing age, she decided to help God out by offering Hagar her young handmaid to be the mother of the promised son. The culture at that time declared all children of servants to be the children of the master and mistress of the household, especially if the master had fathered a child. Even though Abram believed God for the promise, he complied with Sarah's request and Hagar became pregnant. It did not take long for the strife to develop between the two women, and Sarah banished Hagar from the home. But the angel of the Lord found Hagar in the wilderness where she had fled from Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return unto your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And he said, Behold, you are with child, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Genesis 16, 10 to 12. The Amplified Version describes Ishmael as a wild donkey of a man who would be the who would be continually fighting and dwelling in defiance of all his brothers. And we certainly see that today. The name Ishmael means God hears. Because his name contains the name of God, El, Ishmael was also dear to God to God's heart. Because he was the son of Abraham, but not the promised son, he was still given an inheritance and a promise of prosperity. Ishmael was not to be the one through whom the promise of a redeemer would come. As a result of Abram and Sarah getting ahead of God, the descendants of Ishmael would become a thorn in the flesh to Israel from that time forward. More on that subject a little later. Eventually, God answered the prayer of Abram and Sarah, whose names were now changed to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac was born according to the promise of God 25 years earlier. God said, You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Genesis 17:19. This is where the ancient feud that started more than 1900 years before Christ began. The generations of Ishmael are listed in Genesis 25 as the descendants of his 12 sons who were called princes. Many of those who are Arabs today can trace their lineage back to Israel, although not all Arabs share this lineage. 
Both Judaism and Islam regard Abraham as the father of their respective faiths, but Muslims have retained a seething anger toward the Jews since the time of Israel because they feel that they should be the heirs of the promised land and that Ishmael is the true son of the, of the promise since he was the firstborn. Although God was very generous in giving a great deal of land and and innumerable descendants, they are not satisfied with not having the distinction of being God's chosen people and ruling in the region. The jealousy has sparked antagonism toward the Jews continually. And to all this, add the fact that Satan himself has constantly stirred this hatred and attempted to thwart God's plans for Israel. From the first prophecy given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden for a future Redeemer, Satan has been on the lookout to block the fulfillment of God's plans. Through Cain, murder was introduced as a way of ridding a person or a nation of its enemies. When God tested Abraham to see if he would withhold Isaac from him, Abraham received the promise of a multitude of descendants once again, but this time with an even stronger agreement. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Genesis 22, 15-17. The Apostle Paul reiterates this when he wrote to the Hebrews. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Hebrews 6.13 For those who have believed the heretical doctrine of replacement theology that teaches that God has forsaken Israel and replaced her with the church, these verses refute that. Paul addresses the same idea in the book of Romans, chapter 9-11. to God will never break his promise to Abraham or the oath to himself. There has long been a dispute as to who owns the land of Israel. After the dispersion of the Jews in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, many other people have lived in the region until 1948 when Israel once again became a nation state. But did they have a right to the land? The promised Abraham's descendants remains in place, so the land is theirs. More specifically, the holiest place in Judaism, the Temple Mount, also known as Mount Moriah, was chosen by God himself. Historically, it is where Abraham was about to offer his only son, the one who had been promised to make Abraham the father of a multitude, as a sacrifice to God. The angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from the sacrifice and again told him that he would be the father of a nation. But hundreds of years later, King David purchased this very site from Ornan the Jebusite. He bought not only the land, but also the oxen and the wheat for building an altar to sacrifice to the Lord. Ornan had offered to give all of this to the king, but David said, No, I shall surely buy it at full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. First Chronicles 21, 23, and 24. These verses show that King David legally purchased the Temple Mount long ago in Jerusalem. It belongs to the Jewish people and will one day see a third temple built upon its summit. Satan has tried throughout history to destroy the Jewish people and to obliterate Israel. In his very twisted thinking, if he can do this, then he will prove God a liar and have legitimate reason to claim God's throne. How he, as a created being, thinks that he could overcome God and his plan is beyond ludicrous. God could wipe out Satan in an instant. Satan's first attempt, after hearing God's promise to Abraham, was to get the Pharaoh of Egypt to take Sarah as a concubine as they resided in the land during a famine in Canaan. This would have destroyed the promise of a son through Abraham. 
Then Satan tried multiple times to destroy the patriarchs, their descendants, the children of Israel and Egyptian slavery, and countless wars against the Jewish people throughout history until the time of Christ. When Jesus was born, there were multiple attempts to destroy him at his birth and during his lifetime. But God protected Jesus until Jesus voluntarily gave his life on the cross to redeem all of humanity for eternity. Before his death, Jesus warned his disciples of the many things that would occur on the earth before he returned to establish his everlasting kingdom. One of the things was the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD. From that time on, the Jews would be scattered throughout the world in many nations, just as Jesus predicted. It must have seemed to them that God had gone back on his promise, but he had not. Many do not realize that the Israelis are God's time clock. All major historical events have revolved around the fact that God chose a group of people as his own in an effort to show the world that he was the best leader that a nation could have. Although Israel has been unfaithful many times, God has never broken his promise to Abraham. He has protected them against insurmountable odds, not because he loves them more than any other people, but because of his faithfulness to a promise made centuries ago. One of the ways that Satan was to deceive people is to mix just a little truth with deception. He did this with the temptation of Eve. 600 years after the death of Jesus, a young man was born in Arabia by the name of Muhammad. He was distressed by the rampant idolatry of his people and searched for truth in finding the one true God. This provided an opportunity to produce a challenge to Christianity, which, sadly, was not the vibrant, spirit-filled faith that had once had been at the outpouring on Pentecost. Muhammad isolated himself in a cave for prayer and received several visions where he claimed to be visited by Gabriel. At first, Muhammad said that the spirits were the jinn or genies, but his wife, Khadija, convinced him that he had seen the angel of God, Gabriel, and that the revelations that he was receiving were from God. Muhammad himself was illiterate and could not read many of the Jewish or Christian scriptures. He knew bits and pieces of their doctrines and believed that there was only one true God, but the supposed messenger from God told him that God had no son. Therefore, Jesus was rejected as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Allah, whose name comes from the root word Alat, meaning the moon goddess, was chosen as the name of the deity for his new religion, Islam. The term Islam means submission, and it was meant to be taken very literally. Many of the words and practices of Muhammad, who later was called a prophet, were written down in what is now known as the Quran in its companion book, the Hadith. The first part of the Quran is different from the second half because it was compiled at a time when Muhammad was attempting to convince Jews and Christians of his so-called revelations. At first, he was friendly to both groups, but as they continually rejected his doctrines and his claim to have revelations from God, Muhammad became increasingly hostile. Initially, he regarded Jews and Christians as the people of the book, but when they rejected him and his teachings, the latter part of the Quran began calling for the subjection and deaths of those who refused to submit themselves to Islam. By the time Muhammad died in 632, Islam had spread throughout much of Arabia and into some of the neighboring areas. It was not a voluntary conversion for most. Instead, it was spread by war and conquest of these regions. Today, there are at least 1.5 billion Muslims in most countries around the world, with Indonesia having the highest proportion of adherence to the faith. 
When Muhammad died, he had not designated a successor, and this caused an immediate division among his followers. His favorite daughter, Fatima, was married to Muhammad's cousin, Ali, who became the first imam of the Shia branch of Islam. Muhammad compared Fatima with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Ali to Aaron, the brother of Moses. Two of their children became the second and third imams, and they were told that in paradise they would be the lords of the young people there. The challenger to the leadership of the followers of Muhammad was Abu Bakr, the father of one of Muhammad's wives, Aisha. He became the founder and first caliph of the Sunni branch of Islam. He was one of Muhammad's closest companions and was a strong financial supporter of the movement. Abu Bakr is credited with compiling the Quran into one book, putting together all of the bits of information written down over the years. He also became the first leader of the Muslims after the death of Muhammad. In general, both Sunnis and Shias followed the Quran and the Hadith, which is the book of the sayings of Muhammad. They both practiced the five pillars of, a, of Islam, which are the declaration of faith, which states the belief in one God and that Muhammad is his prophet. Number two, fasting during their holy month of Ramadan. Number three, obligatory giving to help the poor. Number four, prayer five times a day toward Mecca. And number five, if possible, a prayer pilgrimage to Mecca. The main difference revolves around the interpretation of certain verses in the Quran and who was to be the successor to Muhammad. Shias believe that only direct descendants of Muhammad are to be considered legitimate rulers of the faith. Today, about 85% of Muslims are Sunni and the, the remainder are Shia. There are small splinter groups, but the main divisions are Sunni and Shia. Sunnis are primarily in Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, and Indonesia, and Shia Muslims are in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria. The militant group Hezbollah, based in Lebanon, is Shia, while Hamas, based in Gaza, is Sunni. One of the interesting beliefs of the Shia Muslims is that of the 12 Imams. The first 11 Imams were murdered by the Sunnis in the continual fight for leadership. The 12th Imam, who was a descendant of number 11, was a young boy who was hidden in a cave to protect him from assassination. He was never seen in public again. The belief among Shias is that this boy is being supernaturally preserved in a sleeping state until the end of life, or end of days rather, when he will emerge as the 12th Imam and convert the entire world to Islam. Now we're going to take a brief break and you can find out how you can be a witness in 177 different countries around the world. We will be right back. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click donate. You can also text give by texting the dollar amount followed by the word radio to the number 84321. First time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax deductible. Join us as we change the world. Welcome back. Muslims believe that Jesus was a good man and a prophet, but that he was not divine and definitely not the Son of God. They deny that he died on the cross for the redemption of humanity. Their belief is that Jesus returned to heaven where he was rebuked by God for claiming to be his son. Supposedly, Jesus repented and will atone for his lie by 
returning with the twelfth imam at the end of days, confessed to the world that he lied and helped convert the world to Islam. Obviously, this is contrary to the Bible. But when hundreds of millions of people fervently believe this, it is difficult to refute. Islam has had two goals since the inception of the religion, world Islamization and the destruction of evil and the destruction of Israel. They also believe in self-fulfilled prophecy as a way of bringing in the twelfth imam. They must start a war with the West and defeat them to bring about the supremacy of the imam, also known as the Mahdi. Today, millions of them believe that we are in the last days and that the Mahdi is about to arrive on the scene and that they will be victorious in the war against Israel and the West. This is why today they are taking advantage of the political discord in both the U.S., which they term the Great Satan, and Israel, which they term the Little Satan. They call on Allah and all Muslims to join them in the battle that they are trying to start at this time. Out of the region, and I emphasize the word region of Palestine, came the present-day nation of Israel. It was literally born in a day with the Declaration of Independence from Britain and its birth as a nation on May 14, 1948. This fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 66, Verse 8 that says, Who has heard such a thing and who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall the nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Up until that time, the Jews living in the area were called Palestinians. But as soon as the state of Israel was formed, Yasser Arafat formed the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and declared all the Arabs and Muslims living there to be Palestinians. It must be noted that there has never been a country called Palestine. It was a region, but never a country with its own language and its distinct nationality. Multiple wars followed, with each one trying to expel Israel from the land and drive the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea. The Jewish state has attempted to appease the enemy by giving away portions of their land and allowing self-government in these territories. This has always proven to be a bad mistake. Fortunately for Israel, God allowed them to regain full control of Jerusalem, which became its official capital in 1967. They also gained control of the Golan Heights, which was... A, which is a strategic barrier against attacks from the north. The Golan is important not only for its underground military base, but also as a protection of the water supply from the Jordan River. Hamas is in Gaza, but Hezbollah is based in Lebanon, and Iran and Russia both have supplied them with weapons to destroy Israel. They do not realize that nothing and nobody will ever dislodge Israel from her homeland again. The prophet Zechariah wrote about the deep significance of Jerusalem. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all people around it, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, although all the people of the earth shall be gathered together against it. Zechariah 12, 2 and 3. As we have discussed in previous episodes, the city of Jerusalem is the city where God literally placed his name in the Hebrew letters YHVH, or Jehovah, in both the rocks and the topography of the city. All who have tried to divide the land for the, or the city have given for the city have paid a steep price for it. Ariel Sharon, who gave away much of Gaza in 2005, fell into a coma shortly after that from which he never recovered. We can see the results of this with the current war that originated in Gaza this past weekend. This is the first time that the wall has separated Gaza and it was breached by the Hamas terrorists into Israel proper. And they had slaughtered hundreds of Israelis as a result. Prophecy experts and Christians who are 
who are interested in the prophecies that concern Israel, especially in the end of days, are drawn to the scriptures that predict that there are these wars. There are several that are relevant to the end times. The Psalm 83 war, the Isaiah 17 prophecy against Damascus, the Battle of Gog and Magog, and the Battle of Armageddon. Scholars differ as to the sequence of these wars, except that most agree that Armageddon is the final conflict before Christ returns to set up his earthly kingdom at the end of the tribulation. Many prophecy scholars, including Bill Salas, believe that we may currently be watching the war described in Psalm 83. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They have laid crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Psalm 83, 1-5 and 15-17. Even though the main player in this war is Hamas in Gaza and at the moment limited attack by Hezbollah in Lebanon, the U.S. has become involved in defense of Israel. Russia and Iran are sponsoring the Islamic fighters on both fronts. Other nations are most likely involved behind the scenes. Not only do the Muslims want to drive Israel completely out of the region and kill them all if possible, but other nations, especially Russia, would love to get their hands on the natural resources of oil and natural gas that Israel possesses. The death toll on both sides has been horrendous, with indescribable slaughter of innocent civilians, including babies and children. Only God knows all of the ones responsible for the atrocities and for starting this war. One Islamic leader has called for an international jihad against Israel today, Friday the 13th. Two things have, need to be remembered here. First of all, Muslims are very fond of anniversaries. They hold grudges for a long time as evidenced by their frequent references to their grievance about Ishmael not being the favored son. They exacted revenge on Israel 50 years to the day on the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. The second thing to remember is that many things occur in the month of October leading up to Halloween. It is the high holy day of Satanism where all of his human minions pray against churches, pastors, and Christians in general. The demonic slaughter of innocent people, particularly the beheadings, rapes, and short shooting of babies, is evidence of the evil behind this war. The concern is that this war will escalate into one or both of the next two prophesied wars in the Bible. One of them is described in Isaiah 17 and is called the War of the Destruction of Damascus. The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. Isaiah 17, 1-3a. Damascus, Syria is the world's oldest continuing city. Damascus has never been destroyed, so that is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. It has been estimated that there are well over 10,000 terrorists based in this region alone. Both Israel, I'm sorry, both Iran and Russia have been have bases there and they help to fund Hamas, who is headquartered in Lebanon. They are far more dangerous than Hamas, who is in one sense relegated to a small area within Israel that is more easily controlled than another country like Lebanon. 
This attack has galvanized the resolve of the Israeli people to destroy their enemies once and for all. The past few days have shown the Israeli military bombing Gaza before an anticipated ground incursion. Israel has already shut off electricity, water, and food to Gaza. Sadly, unless the Lord miraculously intervenes or the IDF is able to rescue them, the hostages, including Americans, will most likely be collateral damage. There will be no negotiations. This is a desperate fight for survival. If Hezbollah launches rockets into Jewish cities, or worse yet, brings the same atrocities that Hamas has done to Israel, then Israel will not hesitate to destroy Damascus. They have warned the Syrians that if they tried to do that, that they would glow in the dark for a hundred years. Israel has weapons that the world does not know about, and they have vowed never to go through what they did as a nation in the Holocaust. The great concern is that if Israel does this and Damascus is reduced to rubble overnight, that it would escalate into an even greater war. This is known as the Battle of Gog and Magog, as described in Ezekiel 38. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you, Ezekiel 38 and verses 1 to 6. Now, Gog is a prince, a spirit, and Rosh and Meshach and Tubal are thought to be in Russia. Persia, of course, is Iran, and Ethiopia and Libya are nations that exist today. Gomer is probably Turkey around there. So these are the nations that are going to get involved in the Gog and Magog War. The chapter goes on to describe this war with many other nations getting involved. The principal players are Russia and Iran, with Libya and Ethiopia joining in. Turkey will likely join in, as well as some of the other surrounding countries. But if this war starts, then the principal players will suddenly discover that the God of Israel will himself defend his people. The last part of Ezekiel 38 describes how God's fury will rise, and those armies attacking Israel will be reduced to a fraction of their original size. The Bible says that only one-sixth of them is going to be left in this in this war. So they are going to be pulled down into the area and destroyed by God himself. We don't know whether this is going to be nuclear or whether there is going to be um, natural things that occur because the area has a lot of volcanoes in there and there could be a lot of rocks and volcanic ash that destroys them instantly. And you wonder why they are on horses on there? That's because it's a very mountainous area and tanks are not able to get into that place. So this is why horses are described in there, and that's the only way that they can get around and do battles. Now, many prophecy scholars believe that this war of Gog and Magog may just precede or trigger the rapture of the church. That, of course, remains to be seen. But conditions are such now that unless there can be something that stops the current escalation, it could easily lead to this major war that was prophesied to set the entire Middle East on fire. Now, again, I'm saying that this is what the 
Muslims want. They want to start a war with the West because they do believe that they are going to be victorious. Sadly, they're going to be very surprised when they find out that God himself does love Israel and he's going to protect his people against all of this. They have called for a global jihad today on all Muslims to join in with this. There are many protests around the world and the sympathy has been generated for the Palestinians, but they don't realize most people have no Bible knowledge today, so they don't understand who the Palestinians are. God's chosen people are God's time clock, and they are going to be protected against all odds. So Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy of the very dangerous events that would occur in the end time. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men will be lovers of themselves. They're going to be unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, and despisers of those who are good. Second Timothy 3, 1, 2, and 3. We have seen this in the atrocities of the wars with the uh, devastation that has happened against the babies. There have been beheadings of children. They have gone in. They have shot the babies in the head in front of their mothers. They have beheaded the mothers in front of their children. It has been horrible against this, and only God can stop this. We pray for all of the ones who are in there because everyone, both Palestinian and Jewish, are souls that are going to spend eternity someplace. So we do need to be praying for them that God will give them dreams or visions of himself, that he is the only Savior and the only one who can bring them to himself. So our only safety is in Jesus Christ. And if you did not know him today, then I urge you to ask him today to be your Savior. He loves all who are involved in this war, both Palestinian and Israeli, including the terrorists. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Israel, and until next week, keep looking to Jesus. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click Donate. You can also text give by texting the dollar amount followed by the word radio to the number 84321. First time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax deductible. Join us as we change the world.